If you are a teacher or administrator, or if you plan to go through extensive education in your life, so go to college, get an undergrad, get your master's, maybe even a doctorate or PhD, sooner or later it's likely you're going to come across a quote in a classroom or maybe a principal's office that says something like this. A failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Some of you have already thought about, I'm putting that in my living room today. A failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Another way you can put it, which is a little easier to understand and grasp, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Whether it's kids learning how to eat their breakfast and be fully dressed before the school bus arrives, or telling your spouse, we need to go now, or we're going to be late again. Or it's children's ministry workers communicating ahead of time when they can and cannot serve in a given week. Our entire lives are full of deadlines, expectations, and the call to prepare accordingly. Now, we can certainly choose to remain indecisive almost everything if we choose to live that kind of way. But chronic indecision is still a chronic decision you make. As one dad joke has wittingly framed it, I used to think I was indecisive. Now, I'm not so sure. Planning, preparation, it's something we should all learn the importance of as early in life as we can. The sooner you and I can develop those mental muscles of planning and preparation, the sooner we'll be able to efficiently and effectively accomplish whatever task is put before us. What are those muscles, though? What are those mental muscles of planning and preparation? Well, it's those mental muscles of assessing a situation, rightly, accurately assessing what reasonable and realistic options are before you, accurately addressing the problem or challenge or goal at hand, and then persevering. Persevering through problem-solving, critical analysis, and then coming to a firm conclusion. And in many important decisions in life that affect a lot more people than just ourselves, it's also wise to seek advice. Go to those who are a fountain of godly wisdom. Go to those who have a seasoned track record of experience. Go to those who have some type of skill level or expertise in whatever task you're trying to accomplish. Then when all matters have been considered, then you must exercise, and I must exercise, courage and faith to walk forward in whatever plan has been put in place. Now, as Christians, we believe in a sovereign God who rules over everything. Our God plans and purposes to perform throughout history and into our little bitty lives, whatever he has sovereignly decreed to come to pass. As Psalm 115, verse 3, boldly declares, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
Or Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And as image bearers of this plan-forming and plan-fulfilling God that we serve, we likewise want to apply biblical principles of how to plan in accordance with godly wisdom and, and not to make it overly spiritual, sanctified common sense is one of God's common graces to us. Read the book of Proverbs. That's basically a good summary. Fear God and use common sense. Yet, at the end of the day, we must also recognize that we are not sovereign like God is. God's plans are superior to our plans. God's plans are superior to our plans. That means with fortitude and conviction, we must all recognize sooner or later that even our best strategies and our most well-thought-out plans can still fail. And they will fail if the Lord isn't causing those plans to prosper, or at least prosper in the way that you and I intended them to come to pass. As Psalm 127, verse 1, soberly reminds us all, it's a very good verse to memorize. If you're into scripture memory, try to memorize Psalm 127, verse 1. It says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. As children of the Lord our God and devout followers of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we also know that every step along the way, whatever task is before us, we should pray, we should renew our minds in Scripture, and we should patiently wait upon the Lord. This morning, we pick back up in our current sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, and we find ourselves in exactly this part of the story. Would Nehemiah be able to bring chaos in Jerusalem into order? Would the people of Israel get behind Nehemiah's plans? Would Nehemiah's leadership be used of God to prepare God's people together for action? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Bible that's sitting in that chair right next to you or in front of you and take it as a gift from our church to you if you don't have one at home. If you're going to use one of those Bibles, you can find that on page 226, Nehemiah chapter 3. And if you are with us for the first time, you are well, welcome to re-listen to the previous sermons in this series on our church podcast, but here's a brief summary to catch us all up to speed. We are currently working through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, where we see the initial blooming of God's plan to restore his exiled people back into their homeland, to see God restore what had been lost, restore their homes, restore their communities, restore their fortunes, and to see the wall rebuilt. As Jeff, obviously, gave me a little funny jab there. I, I'm not trying to get into any kind of sermon illustrations with the wall. They are actually used to actually bring us closer together, not 
separate us from mankind. But I, I, I do appreciate the humor there. It is an, an aptly illustration. But as God would restore his people back into the land, it was more than just physical structures that God was concerned about. He was concerned about the spiritual lives of his people. Their lives needed to be rebuilt. Their lives needed to be revived once again. A few weeks ago in Nehemiah 1, we saw how God had brought some heavy and hard news through Hanani and the Jewish men for Nehemiah to hear. And and Nehemiah, being a Jew who was born most likely during the 70-year captivity in Babylon, he got word that the city of his ancestors, the city that he loved, the city that he cared about, Jerusalem, was still in shambles. It was a mess. The rebuilding of the altar and the temple had taken place through Ezra years ago, but the work and the work on the house of the Lord had been neglected. It was incomplete. And friends, the people's lives, they showed for it. The city of Nehemiah's family, heritage, the city by which God decided to make his name and his reputation most famously known in, was still in bad shape. The physical structures were in ruins, and so were the people's lives. So after four months of stillness, four months of groaning and weeping, four months of praying and planning and confessing the sins of God's people, as well as his own, Nehemiah finally decided to act. As cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, he would approach the king, really his, his boss, the head honcho that could determine his fate or his future job security. He approached the king about the possibility of returning back to the city he loved and lead the charge on rebuilding the walls. Then over the course of a series of a few brief questions asked by the king and then Nehemiah making a honest, respectful, but bold request to his boss, what happened? Well, the scriptures tell us that Nehemiah got the desires of his heart. But, but who got the ultimate credit for turning the king's heart to give Nehemiah what he wanted for the people of God? We read in Nehemiah 2, verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. As God showed his sovereign power and kind favor to Nehemiah, Uh, Nehemiah gained all that he would need then to go from Susa, the citadel, 800 miles away to Jerusalem to lead the charge. Nehemiah had passports and permission slips in hand, supplies and security guards at his disposal. Friends, God was showing once again what he's always shown himself to be, is faithful. God was providing what he needed when he needed it to do his perfect will. And friends, that same promise is for you and I. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, after arriving and Nehemiah spending a few nights in the city, scoping out the lay of the land, he patiently would prepare a plan. Nehemiah would, if you will, have a vision that he would cast before he would share it publicly with the people. 
After three days, he finally approaches the people who seem to be eagerly awaiting his arrival. They're at the airport. They're in the parking lot. They're out there in the driveway like parents who haven't seen their college son or daughter in a while. That's a hint, hint. If you are here for the summer, visit your parents more often if you can. Either way, even just through a little bit of pushback by God's enemies, Nehemiah said, God is with us, God is for us, and he will prosper us in the end. So how did they initially respond? Here's this guy, most of them probably had never met, travel over 800 miles with all these permission slips, passports, supplies, officers, his own entourage, coming up with a plan to see a city that's been in shambles for almost 100 years, if you really add it all up. How did these bewildered, troubled, discouraged, aimless sheep respond to the shepherding leadership of Nehemiah? Well, they basically said, let's do this. Too much joking and smoking, let's get it going, as my old middle school football coach used to say. Let's get behind it. I'm 100% behind you, Nehemiah. Or as Nehemiah 2.18 said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This morning we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priest, brothers the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and men of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor and of the province beyond the river. Next to them of Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Ur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harmoth, repaired opposite the house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshbaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashbub, the son of Pehath Moab repaired another section in the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, 
ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhozeth, ruler of the district of Mitzvah, repaired the fountain gate. He, repealed, he rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahim, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hash, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Babai, the son of Hinadad, ruler of the half the district of Kela. Next to him, Isaiah, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzvah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the army of the, at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priest, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Banuai, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padea, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After him, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalab, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is God's word. Praise be to God for names like Bob and Sally. Amen? I'm going to have a cup of water just for that. Now, when you come across a passage like this in the Bible, especially if you're a budding or aspiring preacher, this could either be sermon suicide or faithful exposition in helping God's people see all of God's word is inspired. I hope the latter will be what I succeed in today. Why is this passage in the scriptures? And friends, anytime you read anything in the Bible, whether it's John chapter 3 or Nehemiah chapter 3, that's the first question you should ask. Why is this here? 
Because it's not by accident. It's been superintended by the third person of the triune God. Why is this here? Why is this chapter, passage, set of verses, wherever you're at in the Bible, why is it even in this book? Why is it in the Old Testament? Why is it in the New Testament? How does it fit in the grand arc of the Bible story? What is God the Holy Spirit intending to teach Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church in 2022 in hot July in a basketball gym with a really dingy looking wall? What is God trying to teach us today? Those are all fantastic questions to ask. Those are questions you can adopt in your own Bible study reading. Friends, these are good questions to ask because they pertain to the discipline of biblical theology. So if you're wanting to grow this year in your study of the Bible, come check out the women's Bible study, albeit you are a woman, or the men's Bible study, albeit you are a man, that kicks back off this fall after Labor Day. If you have children up to about 12 years old, come back on Wednesday night, drop them off, and we will be teaching them, many ways, catechizing them and seeing the full narrative of Scripture. And if you're wanting to grasp the themes types and shadows, typology, seeing how the Old and New Testament are not contradictory, but seeing them fulfilled. If you want to understand how to read your Bible better, come back this fall, Wednesday nights, to the adult equipping class from 6 to 7. Jansen Lester, myself, and Alan Williams will be tackling a 13-week course on biblical theology. So there's a lot of good opportunities for you not to be intimidated by passages like Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, to discover answers to those questions, we're going to have to do some careful study, right? Can't just make up stuff. We've got to look. We've got to stare at the text, as Piper likes to say. Stare at it. What are some key observations that will give us a firm grip of how to understand this passage? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about us? And what do we learn about what God has called us to be together as his covenant people? First, now if you're taking notes, these are like observations. They're not points in the sermon. They're just giving you kind of a 30,000 foot, and then we're going to get a little 15,000 foot, and then we're just going to kind of fly above the city before we go drilling into application. First, I want you to note how the whole chapter consists of over 50 names. So you can write 50 if you'd like. Over 50 names of individuals, families, towns, and groups of vocations who worked on the project. So just take it in. Over 50. A lot of people, a lot of skill sets, a lot of families, a lot of backgrounds. Remember, Nehemiah is just one man. We're not told if he had the strength of Samson. By the way, Samson's actually probably not all that muscular. It's the spirit who made Samson strong. There goes all the coloring books down the trash. Rant over. <laughs> Nehemiah is not told that he is Arnold Schwarzenegger of his day. He doesn't have the brilliance of an Einstein or the power of some kind of five-star general. He's just one man that God raised up. One tool in his hand. And Nehemiah knew that he needed scores and scores of people to join him if this work was going to be accomplished. You'll also name, notice that the name Nehemiah 
the son of Hakaliah, which we read in chapter 1, verse 1. So if you want to glance there, you can. That's the name of the Nehemiah, who's the main character of this book. Now, there's one Nehemiah in Nehemiah 3, but that's not the same Nehemiah. Why do I mention that? Amongst all these people who are giving themselves to the labors, Nehemiah isn't even mentioned about being a part of the initial groundwork on the project. At least not yet. That means that Nehemiah was primarily used of God to lead the charge, prepare and present the plan before the people, but Nehemiah wouldn't do all the work by himself. In that sense, Nehemiah wasn't trying to be a one-man show. He wasn't trying to be the Michael Jordan on his team. No, rather, he would seek to do what all effective and wise leaders will do if they want to see the work in front of them make fruitful and lasting progress. He did what all wise leaders will do. A parent, a Bible study teacher, a coach, a children's ministry leader, a church song leader, an employer, a president, a school principal, a military general, or a pastor. If any leader of any capacity doesn't want to burn out or face plant in a pride-induced fall, that one leader cannot wear too many hats for too long. One person, one man, one woman cannot think they are invincible. One person cannot think they can turn everything around all by themselves. Friends, if you and I took an honest look at our lives lately, would that describe any of us? Are we trying to be a one-man or one-woman show in our home, in our jobs, maybe even our own respective ministries in this church? Has that described your attitude just this past week? Has the Lord seen fit to bring you to the end of yourself by becoming overwhelmed with life's demands to teach you this hard but necessary lesson? Have you been like Martha in the Gospel of Luke, whose zeal for serving and meeting the needs of so many needs led to a troubled and anxious soul? An anxious soul that maybe some of us have here this morning. It doesn't surprise me at all in counseling. I just listened to about 20 to 30 minutes. One of the best words of rebuke a pastor gave me, I use it often in my counseling. Sister, brother, sounds like you got a lot on your plate. But it also sounds like you're wearing a yoke that Jesus didn't intend you to bear. Christians, we know what to do with our anxiety. We know what to do with our restless souls. It's, let's give it to him. Stop trying to play Jesus. There's only one. Friends, there are going to be times in our lives where God does call us to a season of a heavy load where God's going to show off his power and his grace even through our weakness. And friends, we should also learn as God's people to show our care through carrying one another's burdens. As Galatians 6.2 commands us, And what our church covenant says that we recite together, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But in the week to week, 
the normal daily grind of chores, deadlines, parenting, spousal, and employer demands with the deep frustration that can boil up when we don't see the results that we're working towards. Friends, ask yourself the same question I have to ask myself. What yoke am I wearing? What yoke am I wearing? Friends, we're all going to wear some kind of yoke, whether it's the slavery of Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh's yoke, which is really metaphorical as well for legalism, perfectionism, works-based righteousness, or will we wear the yoke of Christ, which gives freedom? Friends, there is a canyon of a difference between the two. Before you understand Nehemiah 3, God had to do some hard work on Nehemiah's heart. In all his zeal, he didn't get on his pony or whatever he rode. And so, you know, cavalier into the community and going, I got this. God was doing something on his heart months in advance. And a part of that is realizing, Nehemiah, you can't do this by yourself. Friends, even this past week, I've needed to be reminded in my own quiet times of the sweet freedom and rest that comes when you realize that Jesus did pay it all and that Jesus' yoke is easy and will give peace to our souls. Uh, One of those gospel promises for my soul this week, it's been kind of the breakfast for my soul, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To my non-Christian friend, that means Jesus willingly took on the punishment we eternally deserve for our sins that we might be treated infinitely better than our sins actually deserve. And that same grace, that same mercy is extended to each one of us here this morning. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the righteousness and rest you most need. Friends, stop trying to base your salvation on your performance. Stop trying to base your salvation on being a good person. Friends, you're going to face plant in failure every time. You see, when we have our own standard of goodness that we're resting our joy and peace in, friends, we're becoming God ourselves. God has set the standard for goodness. God has set the standard for righteousness and not us. Friends, forsake the tyranny of trying to be all and do all for everybody else and try to impress God and instead rest and receive Christ's obedience for you. Isn't this exactly what Jesus intended when the crowds came to him, weary, tired, misled by the false religion of the Pharisees? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, in other words, my ways, my character, my love, my provision is easy, and my burden is light. So far in the story, Nehemiah seemed to understand that he had a particular divine calling that also had particular God-ordained limitations. 
Nehemiah wasn't trying to wear too many hats for too long. He knew what we all should learn very quickly, that suffering and facing the challenges of our lives are never to be intended to be suffered alone. It is God's will that Christians will suffer in this life, but it is not God's will for us to intentionally suffer them alone. Nehemiah knew he couldn't do it all by himself. He had enemies to oppose him. He had needs before him. So what did he do? Nehemiah would identify, delegate, and commission many other people to do the work. Many other people who would do the work God gave them to do. Pastors and elders of local churches are to do the same, right? Isn't that what Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 teaches us? And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Author Curtis Thomas once said, a pastor who tries to do it all himself, who cannot recruit, train, and delegate assignments to others is not fulfilling the duties of his ministry. We, pastors, are to prepare God's people for their ministries, not do it for them. Second big observation from Nehemiah 3. Within these different categories of people, we have a diversity of needs within this massive project before them. So, on the one hand, as we just discovered, this wasn't going to be a one-man show mentality. Neither was this a one skill set that would meet all needs before them. In fact, I hope you noticed as I was reading through those, the different types of work, which meant there were different types of needs that had to be met. Follow with me closely. These would be a good one to take notes on, just real pithy points. The first point, they consecrated the work. They consecrated the work. This is speaking about the solemn and initial work that the high priest, Eliashib, along with his brothers, the priest, was over in the project. As the spiritual leaders of the people, they were to lead out like pastors do in a church, by example, with their unique authority. And what were they to do? They were to dedicate, they were to commit this work to God. They were, by example, the first people to respond enthusiastically and immediately to Nehemiah's leadership. Look with me at Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, did you catch what it says in the ESV? Rose up. In other words, it's, it's an idea of he heard what was the plan and didn't waste time. Got off the bench, got off his seat, and got to work. He did so quick, fast, and eagerly. He says, with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, which means to be set apart or dedicated for God's purposes and its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Beloved spiritual leaders will set the tone and spiritual temperature for the work of every local church. The spiritual leaders that a church commissions, sets apart, and recognizes, gives the title task, pastor to, whether they understand it or not, the leaders will set the tone and set the temperature for that local church. 
Friends, pray that CCBC is led by elders and other lay leaders who have a white hot passion for Christ's glory and to see his work make progress. Do not settle for less. We want the best of the best God wants to give us. Give us leaders that will lead by example with an enthusiastic bent. Let's do this. Second observation within the type of work, you should have noticed about six times the word built or rebuilt was used. Built or rebuilt. These were actions taken most likely to imply total destruction had happened. In other words, they don't need just some minor patchwork to these walls. They need to be redone from the ground up. As Alan has said when we do work here at the building, Brother Blake, we just putting lipstick on a pig right now. We just putting wood up to hide some ugly. Well, that's not exactly what this part is about. They, they've actually got to get rid of the ugly and start from the ground up. They've got to redo what the Babylonians had totally destroyed. And actually, the northern part of the city, if you followed the first half of Nehemiah 3, the northern part faced the most destruction. That's why they had to rebuild and build it. Actually, take out your worship guide. Let's get you a visual. Go to page 8 in your worship guide. You can take a pen. I don't think anyone has a laser, but pen, a crayon, pencil, whatever. You can kind of follow where I'm going to show you the direction of where they started. Now, you'll notice in Nehemiah 3, verse 1, they started at the sheep gate. So look north, up, top of your page, kind of dead north, sort of northwest, but you'll see it up there. This would have been the initial access point for the sacrificial animals, hence the sheep, that would have been used for sacrifices that the high priest would have offered on behalf of the people. So if you know your New Testament well, particularly the Gospel of John, John 5, verse 2, we know that the sheep gate was located really close to the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus would heal the man who had been an invalid for 38 years, who was lying next to the pool. So you kind of get a visual of the significance of that being the initial first work. Now, as Nehemiah continues, he's going to do something counterintuitive to us. He went counterclockwise. He went west, south, all the way down to the dung gate, also translated the rubbish gate. It's a whole other sermon on the Hinnom Valley. You can go back to Mark's gospel and understand more about that. But anyway, all the way down south, and then they went east and then north. And you'll notice in verse 32, look with me in verse 32, it ends back up where they started, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So you see this total counterclockwise work that started north, went south, and went back. The third observation I want you to notice is another type of action that showed us what was needed to be done was the word repaired. Did you see that in the text? Over about 35 times. So six times, built and rebuilt, about 35 times repair is used. It's exactly what you think it means. It means to firm up. It might be, and that might not be a lipstick on a pig, but it might be mascara or something. But something slightly better to firm up, to strengthen, to restore what had been damaged. Friends, just a good principle here. 
to see the different types of work requiring different types of need? Just because you see problems in your job or your school or your local government or your ministry or the Southern Baptist Convention or a local association or your parenting styles, it doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They weren't knocking everything down totally. They did a few things, but they repaired the majority of it. Brothers and sisters, pray that God would give you discernment of what needs to be rebuilt, redone, and removed in your life versus repaired and improved. You need to use discernment. God has not told you to get rid of everything. And on the other hand, sometimes God might put something in our life and show us actually you need to get rid of quite a bit of things. Use discernment by asking God to give it to you. Friends, this should also be true of us as a local church, right? Each ministry of this local body should periodically be reevaluated in its health, faithfulness, and the fruit it's bearing or not bearing in a church. That's what the elders prayerfully aim to do when we consider the annual church budget. Do we increase funds in this slot? Do we decrease funds? Do we remove this off the items? And this is also what the elders aim to lead out on when we maybe shut down one ministry, but maybe start a new one and recruit more volunteers. And friends, that's what you should be praying for us right now as elders as we're thinking about the future, as we think about partnerships with other churches. Uh, there's a lot of problems right now going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have not publicly said this as a, ch as a body of elders, but there are concerns, there are problems, and there are some churches bowing out for different reasons. Friends, as we said when we planted this church, every year we're going to reevaluate our partnerships. Southern Baptist Convention, Arkansas Baptist State Convention, local association. Why? Some things are broken and need to be repaired, and some things are literally demolished, and they need to be started again from the ground up. We don't know what that means for us long-term as a church. That could mean we start our own association one day. That could mean we partner with other churches doing things well. It could mean we do exactly what we're doing right now. Pray for the elders to have discernment of what needs to be repaired, what can be repaired, and what has to be done away with and rebuilt. Friends, this same thing should just touch every part of our life. Lord, what do you want to remove from my life because it's hindering my relationship with you or the body of Christ here? And what do you want me to work on? What do you want me to focus on? What do I need to ask others to help me on this proverbial wall in my life? And friends, as CCBC, we, we pray for churches every Sunday. Guess what? We believe that the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than our own church. Amen? So the wall, don't get too glued in on this is CCBC. No, it's not. This isn't Jerusalem, by the way. We're not rebuilding a wall. We just move it around. But metaphorically, if we take the imagery of the body of Christ, the people of God, the community of faith, we care about the church of Jesus Christ all over the globe. We're not going to navel gaze and like be all narrow-minded that we're the only show in town. We're not. We want other churches to prosper. So friends, we should pray from the pulpit to the chairs for other congregations. And you might say, well, Pastor Blake, we know that. You say it like a lot. Good. I hope the repetition's sticking. But this is what that also means. This is the difference between little preacher boys and men that want to lead churches. That means that there are some churches 
that need to close their doors and remove the name Christian and church off their building. There is nothing to repair. It's dead. It's dead as a doorknob. The spirit of the living God left a long time ago. Churches like that don't need repairs. They don't need favors. They don't need to be publicly affirmed. They need to be renounced and removed to die. They've given a bad witness to Jesus. But there are also many churches that are true but unhealthy, and they need help. They need encouragement. They need prayer. They need teaching. They need leadership. Friends, we should be praying how we can be a part of what God's doing to help other churches do well. You know what that might mean three years from now? Some of you get stirred up by God's spirit to go. Go over to eastern Oklahoma. Go over to northwest Arkansas. Go over to the east or the west coast as we send you, as we commission you to help other churches that are in need of help. Friends, this is also not just our own country, but it's also the nation's. And make no mistake about it, you might be comfortable and cozy in your present job and lot in life, but never tell God never. 10, 15 years from now, there could easily be pockets of people in this church that literally give it all for the gospel. Sell it. Here I am, Lord, send me. Do not underestimate when a church prays for the welfare of Christ's church. Well, lastly, you also notice there was another action word we've covered built and rebuilt, repair, but there's also the laying of beams and the setting of doors, its bolts and its bars. Uh, Guys, that's just basically an easy way of saying they secured the premises. They got locks on the doors. In their time, it was gates and bars to protect them from outside intruders. For us today, again, that could be security alarms, security cameras. It could be, you know, I know my context, People equipped in certain ways to protect God's people from harm. I'm thankful for David Harwood, thankful for John Lax, putting up security cameras, making sure that we are safe as we can be in this, this place. Uh, safety was important to them. Should be safety. safety should be important to us. Another big observation I want you to note, and this is probably the most insightful of the passage, is the diversity of people, vocations, and skill sets described on the project. Friends, there was a diversity of people. This was not a men's only project. This involved everybody. There were, I want you to know, these might be fun to write down and look at later. Maybe see if your kids can find it because it's such a massive passage. In verse 1, verse 22, and verse 28, you have the priest. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have the high priest. You've got the spiritual leaders involved. The second group of people are the temple servants, verses 26 and verse 31. They were servants who aided the the Levitical priest. They were kind of, we might even consider kind of like a mini-deacon role to some degree. There were rulers, sometimes translated nobles in your Bibles. Verse 9, verse 12. And then verses 14 to 19, these were like district officers over a particular location. Verse 29, there was a gatekeeper. Verse 8, verse 31 and 32, there were goldsmiths, those who refined various metals for profits. 
The sixth category of people, they were merchants, salesmen, basically, traders of various goods. That's verses 31 and 32. Oh, you're going to like this one. Perfumers. Did you catch that? Even the folks at JCPenney's who sold cologne and perfume had a job. All right, JCPenney's, are they even in business anymore? Am I speaking my, okay, we're still there. It's Belks. Are they still around? Okay, all right, so yeah, my generation's still going. Anyway, whatever you're into, they had a job. They were the ointment makers. Eighth category of people were the men of Jericho, verse 2. The men of Gibeon and Mitzvah, verse 7. These were groups of men, get this, that didn't even live in the community. They lived in adjacent and surrounding towns, and they wanted to pitch in on the work. For instance, a little sidebar. You know revival is happening in a church when towns outside of its own want to be a part of what God's doing. Friends, pray that revival would happen in the River Valley. Pray that revival would happen in churches all across this community. Pray they would happen in our own local church. In the ninth category, you hear the refrain, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. The daddies and the sons doing work together. There's just too many to quote. But then there was verse 12. The daughters. Did you catch that? Look at Nehemiah 3, verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed about pastoring here at CCBC is seeing parents and members involve young children in the life of our church. I've enjoyed seeing Isaac Bradford help John Lax install security cameras in the building. This place has turned into Fort Knox, y'all. I mean, we don't want to tell people that, but, you know, keep it on the low. I've enjoyed seeing Samuel Pruitt helping on Wednesday nights with younger kids in our equipping class. I've enjoyed seeing Zoe Smith and the Chain Girls and Emma Baker all serve as helpers in the children's ministry on Sunday mornings. I've enjoyed Isaac Burton telling me we need more VCRs and technology. I've enjoyed seeing kids sing God's praises with the adults in our gatherings. You're not a distraction. You are a blessing. I've enjoyed seeing older kids befriending younger kids in the creative sports arena in the back right. I've enjoyed seeing a church that actually cares about meaningful membership and at the same time creates an atmosphere where young people feel welcomed, loved, and seen. Oh, friends, pray that CCBC knows how to walk that tightrope well. Pray that we don't fall into either ditch where we're an adult-only church and we only care about ourselves or a kid-friendly church where membership means nothing. Help us stay biblically faithful. Pray that CCBC continues to have a culture where kids hear the gospel and we want to see them converted as early as possible. Pray for the elders as we lead out and focusing on the children and the student population over the next year. So whether it's Sunday mornings, VBS, youth ministry, youth camps, we do not want to isolate young people from the broader church family. You want to do one thing to have kids fall away from the church when they graduate high school? Isolate them. Put them in a building or a ministry totally disconnected from the body. That is a recipe for disaster. But when you involve them, you inculcate them, you insulate them with a biblical understanding of a local church, they will grow to love the local church. And they will thank you for it, maybe not in these long sermon days, but maybe 10 years from now. Friends, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a gospel-preaching, 
doctrine-devouring, pastor-equipping, disciple-making, servant-hearted, missions-minded, family-friendly church. That's the New Testament. Go back to Nehemiah 3. Far from being a men's-only project, not only were women involved, but the daughters of some families as well. It wasn't just the well-to-do or the well-respected or the well-known that were involved. Entire families, entire households, entire communities, and pockets of people. It was all hands on deck. Brothers and sisters, as you've observed a little closer, maybe you were kind of walking through some of those names and going, Brother Blake, how are you going to preach that this week? That was Julie's encouragement to me. She's in the children's ministry, so I can say this, but she was like, yeah, if I was preaching that, we'd be done in like 30 seconds. I know. I get it. But what do we glean? I mean, we've done a lot of observations, right? Names, needs, diversity, gifts. Okay, I get it, I get it. What are we supposed to learn from this? Here's your main point. Accomplishing God's mission requires every member of his people to contribute. Accomplishing God's mission requires every member of his people to contribute. When God's people work together in unified passion to fulfill God's mission, the work gets accomplished. Guys, this is God's wisdom. He's revealed it to us. When you do church God's way, God will get glory and his people will be filled with joy. Friends, there's, it's remarkable. With the exception of one verse, did you realize how unified they were? I mean, no church splits. No blogs started to cause a rant. How, how on earth? Think about this one man, 800 miles away goes to a community he did not get raised in, sees people he's never met, pours out his heart, shows the permission, persistence, the supplies, and the security guard, and the whole deal, and they get behind it, and they execute it. And they don't just execute it in ministry silos. They're working together, literally next to him, next to him, next to him, side by side. There was once chaos now there's order. There was once division and aimlessness. Now there's organization and direction. They were working diligently, faithfully, and doing it together. Friends, there was a strong sense of unity, even in the midst of diversity. Did you catch that? There was a strong sense of unity, even in the midst of diversity. And that's what a supernatural gospel-centered church will look like. God calls all of us out of darkness from different backgrounds, different skill sets, different life experiences, different church experiences, or like thereof, brings you together and you love and serve and commit to each other principally because Jesus died for you. I love David Nixon and David loves me principally because Christ shed his blood for him and Christ shed his blood for me. Friends, the same is true for one another. 
We love one another because Christ's blood was shed for his church. That's what unifies us. Not our political affiliation, not whether we were raised Baptist, Pentecostal, or something in between, but it's Jesus Christ. A few other helpful observations. These are just kind of bonus for you. In verses 4 and 21, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, repaired more than one section of the wall. In verses 5 and 27, the Tekoites repaired more than one section of the wall. In verse 13, Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoa, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. And the main point here is all of us are gifted for service, but not all of us will serve in the same capacity. God has gifted us all differently, but our gifts are not used in competition for one another, but to complement one another. Another observation just to make was notice where they worked. They worked in proximity to where they lived and where their jobs were. You'll notice a few times you'll see the phrase opposite or adjacent to their house, verse 10, 23, 28, 29. The big idea there is show the love of Christ wherever you live. See your neighborhood and your neighbors as an outpost for the kingdom at your own home. Moms and dads, this is a good principle for us as well. We should see our first ministry from God with those who we live with. Spouses and our kids are the first opportunity to build the wall of discipling and nurturing, serving and leading. That means this, we should not serve the church with the bulk of our time if our families are being coldly neglected. We must keep our priorities in check. You also notice, again, the different professions. Verses 8, 31, and 32, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants. Again, people were showing the love of Christ And in this context, their commitment to God from where they worked. Friends, see your workplace is not a place to just get on to Friday, but as an ambassador for Jesus. If you're a stay-at-home mom, and you're often alone with the kids, or maybe you're at a job where you don't think it's all that special to God, you know, it's not all that spiritual, we need to be reminded that God's metrics are often not our own. Elizabeth Elliot once said, The taking up of the cross is not going to be something heroic or dramatic or enviable. It's going to be a daily practice of acceptance of small duties which you don't really like. Beloved, the value of our work, whatever it is, is fundamentally not the paycheck you bring or don't bring home, but the one you are serving in your work. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that the Lord, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, friends, as we wrap up this section, there are many different things that go into a group, a team, a marriage, a dating relationship, a ministry, that actually make it work actually makes it run. These are not new or novel, but they're easy to remember. If you're trying to think about what are the ingredients that even in your own workplace is immediately applicable, but especially for a church that are needed if we're going to accomplish a certain goal together. Let me give you these five C's 
Five C's. Chemistry. Chemistry. Complementarity. Complementarity. Competency. Competency. Conviction. Conviction. And commitment. Commitment. Chemistry. Complementarity. Competency. Conviction. And commitment. Chemistry. Do we gel together in this relationship or team? Do we enjoy being around one another's company when working together? Complementarity. Do our strengths compensate for one another's weaknesses? Do our differences sharpen one another and round one another out, or do they sharply divide us? Are we able to lovingly champion our differences in such a way to help fulfill a common goal without compromising into sin? Competency. Do my talents and skill sets help or hinder the overall group's goals? Is this particular ministry or job the best place for me to use my skill set? Or is there someone else that could do the job better in this particular need? Conviction. Do we share the same core beliefs? Doesn't mean everything, but core beliefs that make it possible for us to have deep fellowship and trust each other. You know what the Bible uses for this language? Are we equally yoked? Are we equally going in the same direction? Theologically, philosophically, spiritually? Are we going in the same direction or are we about to pull one another apart? And number five, commitment. Do we have a total buy-in to the mission? Is there a mutual inward resolve and commitment to work together towards a common or shared goal? Friends, take those things to think about this week and whatever activities or organizations, or groups you're in, or ministries you serve in, or jobs you have. They are fantastic for discerning God's will in your life in a lot of ways. But back to Nehemiah. How did these exiled people measure up? When you look at these particular seas, which one stood out among them all? Look with me over at Nehemiah 4, verse 6. Nehemiah 4, verse 6. We'll look at Nehemiah 4 in detail next week, Lord willing. Look at Nehemiah 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. A few other translations say it this way. For the people had the will to keep working. The people were enthusiastic in their work. Bottom line, they were committed. They were not wishy-washy. They were not quarter-hearted, half-hearted, three-quarters-hearted, but wholehearted to do the work before them. If you read Nehemiah chapters 1 to 3, Nehemiah had three questions he was faced with as we've been studying this text. They're not in the passage, but they're derived from the passage. 
Here are those questions. How will this rebuilding project start, be sustained, and be completed? In other words, what's the game plan? How are we going to get from A to Z? Number two, who will take part in this construction project? In other words, who has signed up to volunteer and use their time and talents to get the job done? And number three, what was the key ingredient, the key factor, humanly speaking, to complete the mission? CCBC, we have the same questions before us. How will the building up of our local church be sustained and endure for the years ahead? Not just this year, but the years ahead. What's the game plan? Here's the game plan. We look to God and his good hand for all we need. We look to his word as our guide in life for teaching and preaching and discipling. We follow the leaders God has raised up and set apart for shepherding this flock and we pray for the leaders to set the tone and temperature for the local church. Second, who will take part in this mission then of making disciples, meeting physical, practical, and logistical needs while seeing the gospel spread to other churches outside our own? Here's the answer. It will take every member of Chappie Crossing Baptist Church. Not the person you're married to, not just your kids, Everybody, we want to be an every-member ministry. You see, in many churches all over this nation, it's not difficult to get people fired up after a youth rally or a youth camp or a men's or women's conference. That's actually not that hard to do. But it's a whole other thing to lead a people for years and years on end, week in and week out, to deeply be invested in the lives of one another. Maybe you've heard it said, 20% of the people do 100% of the work, and 80% of the people do little to nothing of the work. A lot of churches are like that. And friends, it shouldn't be like that for us here at CCBC. I praise God that it's not. But why is it that is true? Well, a part of it was happening in Nehemiah's day. Did you catch Nehemiah 3 verse 5? There were some amongst them that were not committed. Look at Nehemiah 3, verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. In Hebrew, the word depicted here is of an ox that grumbles, complains, basically is uncontrollable or stubborn. Spiritually speaking, it refers to a stiff-necked, stuck-in-their-ways, religiously cold person. They're untamable and they're unteachable. Whether it was pride, unbelief, selfishness, entitlement, or all the above, these nobles were not excited about what the Lord was doing through Nehemiah and the people. They were not committed to the Lord and they were not committed to the Lord's people. And friends, that same reality is true in our churches today. Why is it you don't have 100% buy-in Pride, entitlement, an unteachable heart, stuck in your ways. But friends, when our hearts are humble and thankful before the Lord, we will trust the leaders that God places in our life 
and we will trust the word of God that is a sure anchor for our souls. There was one group amidst Nehemiah's day that didn't have the same convictions. They didn't have the same commitment. They didn't share the same chemistry. Friends, that's a good challenge for all of us, even right now, to examine our hearts of why we are a member of this local church. Ask yourself that question right now. Why am I a member here? Am I here first and foremost to receive from me and what I can get? Or am I here first and foremost to receive that I might give, that I might serve, that I might contribute in some meaningful way? Friends, Christ is building his church. One stone, one gate, one wall, one soul at a time. The people in Nehemiah's day had a mind to work. The Lord has invited us as his sons and daughters to participate in what he is doing through his church. CCBC, God is working in our midst. Are you making yourself available to be used by him? Are you committed to your own agenda and vision? Or are you humbly committed with Jesus' people and his vision? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you that you are the God who can prosper the work you give your people. We praise you that you raise up leaders to guide, to encourage, to set the believers an example. Lord, we praise you that in the midst of our diversity, there can still be unity. And Lord, we pray you give us discernment as we think about our lives this week, about what needs to be repaired and what needs to be rebuilt. What in our lives do we need to consider those five C's of chemistry and conviction and so forth? But Lord, even in light of what we've seen in Nehemiah, Lord, the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to work because you had shown them your mercy, your kindness, and your grace. Lord, we pray that our vision for our family, our vision of the local church, our vision of the workplace would match your vision. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.